Hello, Energy Gang listeners. We are pleased to offer you another episode of our Interchange podcast, unlocked for you by our sponsor, ABB Automation and Power World. ABB has an exciting virtual conference coming up in September called Risk, Reliability, and Recovery. This free online event will focus on the real-world solutions to the challenges that utilities face, shrinking budgets, aging assets, new regulations, and a host of new distributed energy assets. Join ABB with your industry peers on September 22nd for a virtual conference to hear experts and utility professionals talk about managing risk and building the next generation grid. If you sign up for ABB's conference, you will also get $100 off a new GTM Squared membership. If you're not already a Square and you want to be, now's the time. Get great content from ABB for free and a big discount on GTM's premium service. How can you pass that up? ABB's digital conference is a must-attend for anyone working in the power sector. It features nine educational sessions, and when you register once, you can attend as many sessions as you like. Again, the event is ABB Automation and Power World's online conference called Risk, Reliability, and Recovery. It's being held on September 22nd from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. Eastern. Register for free at new.abb.com apw gtm. Let me read it again, new.abb.com slash APW slash GTM. You can also follow the link to that conference in the show notes at Green Tech Media or on your mobile device. And now on to the interchange. This is The Interchange, a weekly conversation about the changing business of energy and clean tech from GTM Squared. I'm Stephen Lazy in Boston with my co-host, Shale Khan. Hey, Shale, how you doing? Hey, Stephen, doing well. One of the biggest stories in our industry that we often follow is the continued decline in the cost and price of photovoltaics. Well, this story has already long played out in wind, and it's still playing out in a big way. According to the latest wind technologies report from the Lawrence Berkeley National Lab, the average price of new wind contracts in the U.S. came in at two cents per kilowatt hour last year. Two pennies. That coincided with record installations, record generation, and continued improvements in technology design. All of those trends were documented by our guest, Ryan Weiser, along with his colleague, Mark Bollinger, at the Berkeley Lab. Ryan is a senior scientist at the lab, and we're talking to him today about why wind is still a very exciting industry. Ryan, welcome to The Interchange. Yeah, thanks very much. So you're one of the gurus here in the U.S. for tracking wind trends, and particularly wind cost trends. You have been at Lawrence Berkeley Lab, I think, since the mid-'90s. When did you actually start tracking wind specifically, and, and how different was the market when you, you started monitoring it? I think I think at that time, you know, they were like making turbines out of tractor parts then, right? <laughs> Yeah, I've been at Berkeley Lab since the beginning of time, or at least perhaps since the beginning of the wind industry. I started, And that wasn't a joke about how old you are, by the way. That was just a joke about the industry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when I started here, it was uh, 1995, and, and we started tracking the wind sector, not through the annual report that we now produce, but through other means at that time. So I've been in this business of tracking wind for about 20 years now and certainly the industry has changed dramatically the turbines are still still have three rotors they still look like wind turbines as they did then uh, but boy are they larger and more sophisticated and of course lower cost well we're going to get to that on how design is evolving on how size is changing and of course costs are dropping um 
it's just chock full of these great stats about how the industry continues to make progress. And and I think it makes sense to start with the market and business model developments first, and then we'll turn to the technology side. So I'll just lay out a couple of stats here and we can unpack them. Firstly, the industry installed nearly 8.6 gigawatts of wind in America last year, making it the biggest source of new capacity additions. We've now got 45 gigawatts of wind projects in interconnection queues versus 24 gigawatts for solar and 58 gigawatts for natural gas. So 85% of the wind built last year was owned by independent power producers and In terms of wind buyers, utilities are dominating by far, but these direct retail sales are creeping up, and maybe we can talk a little bit about that. Um, So we can sum this activity up in three words, production tax credit. Um, Actually, let me add a fourth, extension. Would we be anywhere close to this activity, Ryan, without that federal tax credit? I mean, how crucial is that to this really robust activity that we saw after, you know, the major downturn in 2013? The tax credit really has been crucial for the industry up to this point. That's not to say that it will necessarily be crucial for all of time, uh, but to get the the deployment in to drop the cost as a result of learning by doing, certainly the production tax credit has played a significant, if not primary, role. Well, as I said, the average price of new wind contracts came in at two cents a kilowatt hour last year. That's five cents per kilowatt hour less than in two thousand nine. Um, Now, was that driven largely by a few select region where resources are really good, or are we seeing steady pricing improvements all around the country? You know, we're absolutely seeing steady pricing uh, improvements across the country driven by some technology trends that we can talk about a little bit later. That being said, those really low price contracts, those contracts that in some cases are sub two cents and in other cases up to about two and a half cents per kilowatt hour, really predominate in the interior part of the country. If you go to the coastlines, you go to the Great Lakes region, uh, you see some somewhat higher pricing. Still significant price declines, uh, but not prices in the two cent area. Um, so how much of the cost of a wind project, I mean, I think the interior where there's high wind obviously drives down PPA prices. I guess my other question is how much regional variability there is in the capital cost for wind. I, I think mostly of the solar perspective where actually there's a pretty big difference between you know the cost of installing solar in California versus North Carolina. And as a result, North Carolina has way lower prices. Is that true in wind as well? Or is the capital cost pretty fixed and it just totally depends on the, the wind resource? Uh, It's definitely both factors. The wind resource clearly is a dominating factor, but the installed cost or capex of the projects uh, show some significant variation as well. Uh, The interior region, blessed with a lot of flat and windy land, uh, has relatively low capex values on average. You move towards the west coast, you move to the Great Lakes, you move to the northeast. Generally, you see higher costs in those regions. Two cents a kilowatt hour, that's pretty bananas. Shale, do you, when do we kind of expect uh, two cents a kilowatt hour solar in the U.S. for utility scale projects? I mean, not anytime soon, right? We're like just right now celebrating the fact that we're starting to see four cent and in like one or two cases sub four cent per kilowatt hour ppas for utility scale solar and that's considered like sort of ludicrous in the the solar context it globally you can see some like three cent per kilowatt hour and just barely sub three cent per kilowatt hour ppas getting signed for solar in, in other countries that have even lower costs but i mean two cents flat is 
is sort of crazy. Although I guess, Ryan, you know, you've done a ton of research that I've relied upon a lot on things like the value deflation effects for solar and just basically thinking about the ways in which a resource, a kilowatt hour is not a kilowatt hour. A kilowatt hour is is worth something different depending on when it's generating and how dispatchable it is. So in the context of like a two cent per kilowatt hour wind project, which is generating only when it's windy versus, you know, a three cent per kilowatt hour solar project generating when the sun is out. How do you think about the relative value of those types of things? It really depends on the penetration level. At low levels of penetration for both wind and solar, there's no doubt that solar provides some incremental value relative to wind. And so a utility purchaser may well choose the three cent solar deal over the two cent wind deal, given the peak production value of solar. At progressively higher levels of solar penetration though, that might switch over. And indeed, a two cent wind deal will be preferable to the three cent solar deal. So it's really gonna depend on the specific region of the country and the level of penetration that we're seeing for both solar and for wind. Does it become such that is there a point where as you get to a higher penetration of solar, so you have a lot of solar generation when the sun is out, that the the value of wind or just generation at other times actually increases? Or is it just a, a negative trend line for solar that doesn't impact anywhere else? No, that's right. The, the impact of both solar and wind and wholesale prices, the, the effect can be on the overall average level of those prices. But as much as that, it can also affect the temporal profile of the pricing patterns. And in high solar penetrations, we would expect to see solar depressing wholesale prices in the mid-afternoon time frame, for example, uh, but then prices to increase as a result of no solar production in the early evening time frame. Well, it just so happens that wind on average across the US in gross terms is, is more of an evening resource than a daytime resource. And so higher levels of solar penetration could, in fact, increase the market value of wind at progressively higher levels of penetration. Yeah, so that gets at this thing that I think is really interesting, which is trying to think about the longer term relationship between solar and wind. Um, because I think historically, and you put this out in the report for wind, it's also been true of solar in the past. Most of the development of utility scale renewables has been driven by renewable state renewable portfolio standards and most of those were technology agnostic so it was solar competing with wind head to head and so it was just whatever could get you the lower ppa price generally would win out and then i but if we're thinking past the context of an rps that's a zero sum game for renewables into the future where solar and wind are both going to be a significant portion of the market then i wonder whether you're going to end up seeing more I guess, a balanced portfolio because of what you're just saying, the more solar you get, the more valuable the wind becomes? Yeah, I think that's going to be a natural market outcome. And I think we already see evidence of utilities becoming increasingly sophisticated in their purchasing behavior, not just looking at the lowest power purchase agreement price, but instead really trying to analyze at a level of depth the value that that PPA will deliver to their system not only now, but over the 20, 25, 30-year duration of the PPA. So wholesale power prices dropped generally in the U.S., so the, competitive, the competitiveness of these projects didn't, as, didn't improve as much as it might seem. How did the, the dropping of wholesale prices 
counterbalance the economic improvements that we see in projects. Um, I think what is interesting, though, is that, that these projects are in line with natural gas pricing trends that we've seen, yes? Yeah, absolutely. We compare the PPA prices both with wholesale electricity prices across the country and especially in the interior portion of the country where much of the wind development is occurring. And then we also, on a forward-looking basis, compare the PPA prices with EIA's range of forecasts for the future uh, cost of fuel uh, in a natural gas power plant. And wholesale power prices have dropped. They've dropped over the last year as a result of the decline in natural gas prices. Uh, That being said, EIA does project that natural gas prices will rise uh, over time, over the 20, 25, 30 year duration of these PPAs. The EIA does not expect those prices to rise as much as they once thought they would rise, uh, but nonetheless, rising prices for natural gas over time put wind at a stronger and stronger competitive advantage when looking at the full price stream of the PPA and its competition. I I remember in, maybe it was 2010 or 2011, at OWEA's annual wind power conference, and their opening general session was just all about natural gas. And this was when everyone was waking up to the reality of low natural gas prices. And, And like every major executive that got on stage was just like, we need to figure out how to continue to improve uh, manufacturing costs. Uh, we need to see turbine prices drop We need because we had seen a spike in equipment pricing. Um, we need to get better at developing projects because natural gas prices, they're not going anywhere but down and staying suppressed. And it just seems like uh, the wind industry has made remarkable strides since then. And we can get into some of those technical improvements, which I will unpack specifically, but gosh, you know, the wind industry really rose to the challenge. Would you say that's that's true? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, we've got a ways to go. And especially as the PTC begins to phase out as it's under its as it will under its current schedule, there will be presumably a need for further advancements. So it's not time to, to rest on one's laurels here, uh, but certainly an enormous amount of progress has been made in dropping the LCUE and PPA prices for wind over the last five, six, seven years. That was one thing that I thought was kind of striking in the report was you uh, compare a bunch of forecasts for the future for wind development and uh, construction in the U.S. And, you know, in the, in the very near term, there's a pretty narrow band among those forecasts, but not that far out, like 2020, the forecasts diverge significantly. And there's, it seems like there's some forecasters who think the market's going to continue to grow, obviously, as the PTC drops down and then expires, and then others who think that the market will start to shrink again. Do you have a sense of like what's driving the difference of opinions there amongst the, the various forecasters? You know, I think some of it certainly is expectations and the range of expectations for future natural gas prices. Also, lack of clear understanding at this point about the implications of the clean power plan in each individual region and state, Uh, whether state RPS programs will continue to be enhanced as they have recently in places like California, uh, New York, Hawaii, Oregon. DC and elsewhere. So I think there's just a lot of a lot of uncertainty and especially as the production tax credit begins to decline, the range of other factors that can impact deployment become more important and the uncertainty in those factors therefore also becomes more important. 
And 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 do you think that there's enough uncertainty here that the the industry will suffer in a post PTC future? Because one looks at these trends, or at least when the industry is flush, and you look at uh, how how effective that developers have been and equipment manufacturers have been in in dropping costs of products and project development. Um, like I, it just seems to me that the trends are going in the right direction. Help help us understand a little bit more about why there are all these risks post PTC because one w- could look at the industry today and say, well, the industry itself is saying that they're pretty much ready for a post PTC future. So let me, I guess, begin by saying that you know forecasting is tricky business. There weren't that many years ago uh, at another wind power conference where people were talking about ten dollars per million BTU gas and will it ever drop below that figure? Well, it certainly dropped well below that figure at this point, right? So uh, our ability to forecast the future and especially to forecast the cost of winds competition is especially difficult and entirely outside the control of the wind sector. Uh, But consider the following. Uh, PPA price for wind is two cents today. Let's say the production tax credit goes away overnight. That two cent PTC or that two cent PPA Maybe maybe becomes a four cent PPA or something around that four cent level. Four cents is pretty tricky in today's wholesale electricity markets that are averaging around three, maybe three and a half, or in some cases four cents per kilowatt hour. The operating cost of a natural gas power plant under EIA's base natural gas price forecast is around three and a half cents per kilowatt hour or so. And so you can begin to see that the value of that PTC can certainly shift projects from being completely economic to being only marginally economic or perhaps on the other edge of that margin and being marginally uneconomic. So I have absolutely no doubt that the wind sector will continue to persist and grow after the production tax credit uh, begins to phase out. But the level of that growth is reasonably uncertain and will be driven in significant measure by what natural gas prices end up looking like and how carbon policies at the federal level and state level and how RPS programs at the state level develop in the intervening period. Yeah, no, that's a powerful example. And that's why so many people in the wind industry you know, five or six years ago, we're all of a sudden waking up to this, basically this existential threat when they looked at natural gas prices and it took everyone by surprise. Still an ongoing situation, of course, as you pointed out. And so so let's talk about how they're addressing this through um, through technology improvements. The, the trend here could be summed up simply bigger, better, and cheaper. First, I want to talk about bigger. So the average capacity of land-based turbines is now 2 megawatts, up 180% since the late 90s. Talk about that trend and how much bigger these uh, turbines are getting and where. how much bigger are they going to get for land-based turbines, which dominate here in the U.S., obviously. Yeah, absolutely. No, the turbines have gotten larger uh, over the last uh, decade or so. Uh, we've recently also completed a, a, a global survey of wind energy experts, and those experts project both globally and the U.S. continued scaling of turbine size, though somewhat modest in terms of nameplate capacity. I think the average expert, as I recall, projected that nameplate capacity ratings onshore in the U.S. 
might equal something around 3.25 megawatts in the 2030 timeframe. So there's still some scaling to occur on the nameplate capacity side, but I think the more interesting trends from my perspective exist on the rotor diameter and prospectively in the future, perhaps hub heights as well. One thing I found interesting in the section about manufacturing um, and technology in the report was you looked at how much of the various components and wind projects that are installed in the U.S. are manufactured domestically. And though the number seems to fluctuate some based on a few factors, overall, uh, it's pretty high. I mean, for some components, like over 80 percent of those installations were manufactured domestically, which certainly is not the case in solar. And that number in solar has been decreasing as time has gone on. So I'm curious to hear why you think it has persisted at such a height in wind. Is it just that shipping costs are a lot higher or is there something else leading to the fact that wind has such higher proportion of domestic manufacturing? So I think the high proportion of domestic manufacturing is in significant measure restricted to three primary components of the turbine the tower, uh, the blades, and the assembly of the nacelle. But many of the smaller components, most of which can be shipped for relatively limited costs, are imported from overseas. And so what we've really seen in the U.S. is that the large components, the ones that really impose a significant transportation burden in terms of logistical challenges and costs, have been localized to a significant uh, amount. But the smaller components internal to this nacelle continue to be imported. So we are reliant on, on imports, but largely for those smaller and more shippable components of the turbine. And then sort of along the same lines, the other thing you point out that seemed pretty stark to me was that 73% of the installations in the U.S., I think last year, um, came from three or two companies, rather, GE and Vestas. I mean, that's a lot of market power in a small number of hands. Is there any concern that lack of strong competition amongst manufacturers is limiting price reduction? So it's certainly true that the turbine OEM market has consolidated in the U.S. over the last uh, five or ten years. We really have three primary OEMs, GE Wind, which happens to be the largest OEM almost invariably year over year, and then Vestas and Siemens both placing uh, significantly in the the rankings as well and often flip-flopping between number two and number three. There are a significant number of other manufacturers globally, many of which would be happy to sell into the U.S. market. And so I think overall there isn't too much concern in the wind sector about competition. The three primary OEMs are active competitors against one another, and there are a large enough number of significant sort of fringe or tech second tier OEMs that I haven't heard too many concerns about market power or ineffective competition. And I think we've seen that clearly since 2010 in the significant reductions in turbine prices that we've observed. I, I want to follow up on Shale's initial question. And you know, we did see a number of manufacturing facilities closed down when the PTC expired. And in 2013, we saw this massive drop in demand. Can you remind me what kind of factories those were? Were those blade factories or were they other components? And then also the big question really is now that we're through that period and we still see, you know, a, a decent amount of imports of certain components of wind turbines, 
did the stimulus work? Did it have its uh, intended effect on building manufacturing here in the U.S.? So a two-part question there. Yeah, in terms of the manufacturing facilities that have closed, I think it is important to, to remember that five to ten years ago, we had a larger number of active OEMs in the U.S. with domestic manufacturing capability. And those OEMs are still active in the, OPA, in the U.S. market to the extent that they sell turbines here, but they no longer have retained their domestic manufacturing capabilities by and large. And so I think what we saw about five years ago is a number of the smaller second or third tier OEMs leaving the market, their supply chain kind of drying up unless it could find or latch onto one of the three primary OEMs. So a lot of the domestic uh, content, a lot of the domestic manufacturing capability that we have now is capability that intends to serve and has contracts to serve one of those three primary OEMs. So we still have good, solid domestic content for those larger goods uh, as delivered to the three primary OEMs, but we've seen a, a loss of manufacturing capability along the fringes. What is most interesting to you that you're tracking? Because uh, obviously we've seen rotor diameter increase, the blades are increasing, the tower height is getting taller, but now we're starting to see some other innovations, like GE is going back to this potentially like collapsible latticed tower to reduce material costs. We are seeing new blade and rotor designs to improve uh, performance in lower wind speeds. So that's increasing the number of geographic areas where people can deploy projects, things that might have been unthinkable 10 years ago. Um, where do you see this headed? Oh, also sensors too, right? GE has been a leader in putting sensors all over its turbines and, you know, it wants to make, it's doing what it has done in natural gas to try to make these wind turbines as smart as possible and to really create this dynamic fleet of, um, power plants that is self-aware. What to you in that is, uh, going to have a big impact in the industry today and what's most interesting in looking at what will come and maybe get commercialized or have a big impact on the industry tomorrow? So I think if one looks over the last five to 10 years, the single most significant technological development has been the growth in rotor diameters and the resultant drop in the specific power of turbines. The specific power is defined as the nameplate capacity of a turbine divided by the rotor swept area. And so as rotors have grown, and that swept area of those rotors has grown at a faster pace than nameplate capacity, specific power has dropped. What that means is that in any given wind resource site, a turbine with larger rotors will achieve higher capacity factors. And so those projects, those wind projects installed in the U.S. in 2014, had an average capacity factor in the year 2015 of 41%. Now, the wind uh, resource in 2015 was actually pretty weak. It was a low wind resource year on a national basis, but still a 41% capacity factor. On the other hand, if you look at projects installed from roughly 2004 through the year 2011, the average capacity for that enormous fleet of wind projects was just a share uh, or a, a bit over 30%, 30 to 34%, let's say, year over year. And so you're seeing, you have seen an enormous increase in the performance of these projects as a result of larger rotors. 
So that's what we've seen to this point. Going forward, um, there may still be uh, additional opportunities in the rotor growth market, but we are beginning to see increased interest in taller towers. Taller towers are, are trickier. They're harder to transport. The economic positioning is a little bit more tricky than it is for, for long rotors, but there are a growing number of OEMs that are beginning to look at innovative tower designs. And also, Stephen, as you noted, significant efforts kind of on the software side of things, trying to control the turbines to shed load, to maximize production, to extend turbine life. All of these are incremental improvements, admittedly, but collectively are pretty significant incremental improvements. And one final question, the takeaway for me when reading your reports is that there is still a lot of room for improvement here. This is not an industry that is plateaued, huh? Yeah, no, we've been tracking the industry for 10 years, and I, I hope to do it for at least another 10, Stephen. <laughs> well, we'll bring you on <laughs> hopefully before that 10 years is up. Um, that's all for the show. Ryan Weiser is a senior scientist at the Lawrence Berkeley National Lab and co-author of the latest Wind Technologies Report. We'll link to that in the podcast notes. And I'm sure we'll have a charticle about it in the next day or so, some great charts in there and good data. Thanks to all of you for listening. And one more thanks to ABB for unlocking this content and making it available to all of our Energy Gang listeners. Make sure to sign up for ABB Automation and Power World's Risk, Reliability, and Recovery online conference. It's being held on September 22nd from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. Eastern. See the show notes for a link to the conference. We'll talk to you all next week with Shale Khan. I'm Stephen Lacey, and this is The Interchange, the podcast from GTM Squared.